Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 5 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'd just like to thank everyone for tuning in and being an encouraging audience over the last few years, and I'm sure you will enjoy this season as well. We'll take some deep musical dives together in the coming months, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of these conversations I've been having with some incredible musicians and music producers with you. We have a couple of continuing sponsors that help to bring you each episode this season. The first is Union Tube and Transistor, making incredible guitar effect pedals out of Vancouver, BC. My old pal Chris Young at Union has been laying stuff on me for years, starting with his prototype Buzz Bomb pedal about 15 years ago. Since then, he's become a leading light in boutique pedal manufacturers with an extensive line of pedals like the Moore pedal, the Lab Compressor, and the Sone Bender that are constants in my recording world. Check out their line of pedals at uniontone.com. And the second sponsor for the season is Black Mountain Thumbpicks. I've been using these myself for several months, and I think they're great. Cole McBride, the owner, is trying to make everybody happy and now has medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and regular and extra-tight spring tensions available. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. So even though I've been doing this podcast for about five years, my heart just isn't into hounding companies for advertising dollars. So as always, this show mostly relies on listener support to keep going. And thanks to everyone that has done that in the past. It's a huge help to know that there's people out there willing to kick in to make it all possible. So if you're interested in doing so, there's a few simple ways to help out. First of all, please just tell your music nerd pals about this show. Word of mouth is probably the best way to get the show heard more. If you're in a position to kick in a bit financially, you can make a one-time donation or join in on my Patreon account, which is a monthly donation billed directly to your credit card at any amount of your choice. You'll also get access through Patreon to some private videos and other stuff as I make it available. And the third way that you can help out is to buy a t-shirt or other swag as it comes available. You can have a look at those or make a donation or join the Patreon all at the new website, which is www.makersandshakerspodcast.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get them from. And while you're at it, folks, don't forget to have a listen to our offshoot show called One Life featuring Jim Burns. It's a fun concept podcast involving live improvised music and off-the-cuff storytelling. I think you might dig it. And finally, please follow the show on social media. I have links to Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook all on the website as well as a YouTube link. And that YouTube channel actually is going to get a bit more action this year. In the past, I've just put up links to some live performances, but I will be starting a video series this year about music and recording that I think you might dig. So please subscribe to my YouTube channel as well. 
Links are all at the top of the page at www.makersandshakerspodcast.com and at my personal website, which is stevedawson.ca. So that's about it for the biz side of things. Let's get going. On to this week's show. Hey, folks and music nerds from across the lands. Welcome back to the show. This is episode number 110 with my guest today, guitarist extraordinaire and songwriter and singer, Ariel Posen. How's it all going out there? Uh, I hope things aren't too out of control COVID-wise where you are. Things are kind of up and down here in Nashville in that department. Uh, I just crossed the border to Canada to make a record a few weeks ago, and that was a stressful venture, to say the least. And I'm actually about to go up there again to go and play a festival in Canmore, which is just outside of Calgary, and it should be quite the trip. That border crossing is nutty these days, man. What else is going on out there? Oh, I made some records. Uh, They're going to be coming out in the new year. It's a new batch of songs and then a trippy instrumental pedal steel record that was a lot of fun to make. It was all done during COVID and pretty wild to work remotely with a lot of great musicians. Stay tuned for that. Um, There's actually three different records coming out. Uh, It's just the way it worked out, you know? I'll let you know when they're coming. Uh, It'll be sometime in the new year. So... Today's guest is a fellow Canadian, and he's currently making his home in Montreal, the phenomenal guitarist, singer, and songwriter Ariel Posen. Ariel is originally from Winnipeg, but he's moved around the last few years. Man, that's a cool music town, that Winnipeg. It's not an easy climate, but if you can handle the winter there and mosquitoes the size of small dogs in the summer, it's a, it's a cool town. And there's always been a lot of support there for the arts and music. And I first heard Ariel as part of the brother, the Bros Landreth. Do you say Brothers Landreth or Bros Landreth? I don't know. It's the Bros Landreth, who are also from Winnipeg. And I saw them here in Nashville when they played Third and Lindsley a few years back, and they were awesome. And Ariel worked his way up through bars and local gigs in Winnipeg and has some cool stories about the places and characters on the scene there. And anyway, from his start as more of a sideman, Ariel's become an incredible frontman. He plays wicked slide guitar, sings his ass off, and just generally is out there making great music. He has a brand new album out called Headway that we get into the making of here today. And I'd encourage you all to go check it out, as well as his upcoming tour dates. And you can get info on all that stuff at arielposen.com. That's A-R-I-E-L-P-O-S-E-N.com. I should point out that this interview was done a few months ago when things weren't really happening yet, and we talk a lot about the fact that there's no gigs. But since then, it looks like uh, he has a bunch of d- dates coming up, so be sure to check him out at the website there. And uh, he's really active with social media, so I'm sure you can find everything that's going on with him there. So now, without further ado, here is my conversation with Ariel Posen. Well, thanks for doing this, man. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you're in Montreal. Yeah. Moved out here in August, I guess when you could say cases had uh, put uh, chilled out a little bit for a while. It was actually pretty good here over the summer. It's been kind of crazy again, so it was a good time to move. I was back. I was back and forth twice, so I did the Winnipeg Montreal drive twice in about a month. Oh my god, that's a haul. It's a serious haul, but you know what? In the summer, it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, I, I always yeah. associate you know Winnipeg to Toronto or that drive in the winter on tour. It's the worst. And it's the worst. That's the worst. Yeah. And you know what? With some good podcasts, some anything to distract you other than yeah. keeping your eyes on the road, like it was really gorgeous. The weather was just perfect. So there's sort of a lack of information on you out there. And so yeah. like I heard that you were living in Ireland. 
I know you're from Winnipeg. Or I don't know if originally, I don't know if you grew up in Winnipeg, but we can talk about that. But um, what's your trajectory over the last few years? Because I, I heard that you were in Ireland and then I heard you're in Winnipeg. Now you're in Montreal. So what's the what's the scoop? What's going on with like where you're living? Well, it's all true. <laughs> okay. All, all the rumors are true. Uh, my wife has been in a position with school and with work the last few years that have taken her literally across the globe and being a former touring, but hopefully someday back to that. And just a musician in general, I'm pretty portable, you know, I'm great. Right. I'm grateful that I'm in a position now where even before the pandemic, everything I do is pretty remote if need be. It's not, I, I, I don't have, not that I take for granted building up a local scene, which I did my whole entire life, but that is kind of a lesser part of my whole thing now. So yeah, we, we moved to Ireland 2000, 2016. I had been living in Winnipeg my whole life up until then. Wow. What part of Ireland did you move to? Cork. Nice. Yeah. I where, played there. Where'd you play? Uh, it was the jazz, the Cork Jazz Festival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great festival. Do you remember, yeah. do you remember the venue or? It was sort of like it felt, I don't remember what it was called, but it felt like a school gymnasium. <laughs> and maybe and and it may have been a school gymnasium for all I know. Okay, fair enough. It was also like 15 years ago, I'm going to say. Okay. So venues may have shifted or something. Fair but enough. it was beautiful there. And then I was I was touring with Birds of Chicago last year and we played in Cork um somewhere. Also, I don't remember the name of the venue. Hmm. There's a lot of good places for such a kind of small place. There's a lot of there's a lot of great venues. And oddly enough, it's the second biggest city in the country. Like when, when we, is it really? Yeah. I mean, everyone oh. talks Dublin, everyone talks Galway, even Belfast gets more, you know, even though it's technically a separate country, um, Cork is the second biggest. And when we first found out about it, I was on tour in Australia and I'll never forget. I got the call from my wife and she said, I'm, I got into Cork. We're going to go to Cork. And I actually said, oh, where is that? <laughs> like, what is that? I had no idea. Just, you know, growing up in Canada, first of all, we don't learn anything about Ireland, yeah. of course. And geography wise, uh, I was just another one that another person that knew kind of just the very basics. I hadn't toured Ireland at that point. So, yeah, no, it, that was a great experience. But that led me to kind of starting from scratch again. You know, I, I've been a guitar player my whole life for other people, for bands, as a sideman, session guy. You know, you know the drill. You play on people's mm -hmm. records, play on do tours for people, backing people up. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I had found myself, we moved and I, I kind of had to start from scratch. I said, well, we got to make a way to live out here some, somehow. So, you know, how did, how did I get my start originally? Well, I guess I just booked my own shows. <laughs> and I hadn't done anything like that in over a decade. Like, it So did you, know, did you know anybody there? Were you, did you have any like musical connections there whatsoever? I had... One connection and an acquaintance introduced me to their friend who introduced me to their, to his friend, who was the singer songwriter <laughs> in town, this lovely guy. Yeah. And I should preface and say that like, I'm very fortunate to already have the most minor of minor followings in some kind, in the smallest of guitar community at that point. So like some people actually kind of knew who I was, which was very strange. Uh -huh. But this guy, Took me, he said, hey, I'm playing a show tonight. This was my second night in town. Yeah. I said, hey, I'm, uh, I'm playing a show. Why don't you bring a guitar and uh, just come hear the show? And then we'll, 
we'll go to a session later. And like, I literally don't know what that means. Now I know, <laughs> like at the time. So for those that don't know, a session, you know, it happens a lot in Ireland is you, you show up and you go to a pub and you play in a booth. Like there's people playing in the booth. I remember having a pint with a friend once in a pub in the middle of the afternoon. And then suddenly two guys started playing in the corner and everyone just stopped talking and just listened for four minutes and 50 seconds. They played the song yeah. and then we all just, and then we went back to conversation. It was pretty amazing. Different from what a session means around these parts. Totally. So <laughs> I go to this guy's show and it was, it was great. And then again, I, I, it's my first time meeting him. I don't know anyone else in the band. And I, I hop into his car with my guitar and we, we unload his gear <laughs> And then we go to this other place called the <laughs> Oliver Plunkett, which is this popular bar on Oliver Plunkett Street. And sure enough, there was a band setting up right in the middle of the bar, like drums, bass, another guitar player. And it's like, just crazy. And he said, here's a, here's a basement for you, man. Plug uh, oh, okay. And sure enough, we, we played for two hours. And that night I met everybody. That's like the, really? the, the go-to musicians. They were all either on the gig or hanging out, sitting all around us. And most of the people that I played with or met that night are now some of my dearest friends and, mm -hmm. and bandmates that I use often. So it, it happened immediately. I got to, I was very lucky to meet everybody right away. So in terms of a little local scene and community, it's like, ah, oh, what I thought I lost from leaving Winnipeg, I just regained that in a new place. Right. Um, and then long story short, uh, I, I was doing a lot of traveling. I was taking advantage of, being in that part of the world. So I was yep. in the UK a lot, doing a lot of stuff in Europe, so clinics. Did you have a UK band that you were using at that point? I had an I Ireland band. An Ireland band. Yeah, okay. a Cork band. They're fantastic. Um, one of them has since moved to London, but they're both Cork boys. Um, yeah, I, I was just doing a lot more. And then my visa expired after two years. They don't have a... It's not like getting a P2 or an O1 or anything. It's like you get the one... Unless you can convince the, the Irish government that there is absolute reason for permanent residency or something like that. Yeah. There's just the one visa. So I did that. And uh, for, for two years, I was just visiting in Ireland a lot and then going back home and then visiting. And oh, okay. We didn't yeah. want to do a long distance thing, but it was the only way we could. So I was kind of homeless, essentially, for, <laughs> for two years. And then, mm -hmm. and then that wrapped up and we're back in Canada now. Okay. And that's basically due to your wife's job. Like she, yeah. she's getting shifted around. Oh, that's cool. And Montreal, same thing. Is that, was that yeah, totally, a, yeah. a, to do with her work? Nice. Exactly. I've always loved Montreal, but it's always also been a place that I just go on tour and spend a day yeah. or two. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so you ended up in Montreal like over the summer. So you've been there for seven, eight months or something like that. About half a year already. Yeah. Do you find yourself getting involved in a scene there or are you just kind of like using it as a home base and just doing your own thing. I guess there isn't really a scene these days. There is not a scene of. that I know of these days. I have basically kept to myself here. I mean, I'm, I have a little yeah. studio here where I do all my work. I've produced a couple records. I've, you know, I've started working on another record. I've been writing. I've been, I do sessions for people. I teach. I, mm -hmm. It's, it's all from here. Uh, I do have some friends here and I do know some people in the scene. You know, I have done a few things at a couple studios, uh, stuff like that. But in terms of, you know, there's no jams to go to. There's no open mics. There's no gigs. So right. that kind of networking or just hang thing hasn't happened. It yeah. sucks because yeah. uh, it's such a great, a great city for that. There is a killer music scene there. Yeah. 
And I mean, once, once things go back to normal with like the jazz festival and yeah, even though I have nothing to do with it, like the comedy festival, I, I just can't, can't wait to take advantage of those kind of things. I don't even know how long we'll be here. If it's, it might be another year, might be, we might always be here. Who knows? Um, but so far it's been great. I mean, I just love the city. I love that I can hike on a mountain right in the middle of the city. Food's great. Yeah. Uh, 8 p.m. curfew since Christmas, but what are you going to do? I'm at home anyway. Really? So, yeah, it's crazy. Wow, I didn't know that. Do you miss Winnipeg? Yeah, I I always miss Winnipeg, but I'm I'm also so used to kind of having this uh, long distance relationship with it now. So yeah, I miss it, and then I catch up, and then I go there, and it's like I never left. It's and it's really the people. It's not that I miss the place itself. All my family, all my friends are yeah. there. I'm actually going there tomorrow which would be great. Oh, yeah. So you grew up in Winnipeg. Tell, tell me about that and like when you got into music and stuff and uh, you know, there's just such a strong musical output from you. And like when I first got to know your work with, with the bros Landreth and mm. those guys, but then there's like a whole strong jazz scene and folk scene and like all kinds of stuff going on there. And I'm, I'm always kind of blown away by the whole Manitoba thing can you tell me a bit about both growing up there but also like i don't know much about like what you were doing you know like 10 years ago when you were kind of like starting what, what's your well first of all both my parents are musicians um, my parents had a band called finjan which they had for 30 years and i when i was born like literally two months old i was already on a plane just going really to gigs. yeah yeah was you're one of those car. kids yeah, yeah I was, uh, <laughs> just immersed in you know Folk festivals, jazz festivals, theater shows, this, that, parents being around. What, what, like, what kind of band was that? Uh, it was like folk meets klezmer, meets jazz, meets world music. Uh, my dad plays bass, upright bass sings. My mom plays, she plays piano, but in the band she played, plays accordion and sings. Okay. And uh, it's a fantastic band. So I just grew up with that, being immersed in that. And also my dad was a producer at... CBC for 30 years. He ran a show called After Hours. And what's his name? Kinsey Posen. I know that show well. That's right. Okay. So that's your dad. That's, that's crazy. That's his baby. Yeah. So I grew up right. between those two worlds. You know, they, they traveled a lot, but they, they always, they had day jobs. So they were always, mm-hmm. oh, most of the time, it was just like the odd every weekend they'd leave and we'd stay with our grandparents. And then in the summers, we'd go do the festival circuit and turn it into a family trip, which was awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I started playing when I was about seven or eight, started on piano, sorry, six or seven, started on piano and then switched over to guitar when around the time that Beatles anthology came out, which was like 94, 95. And my parents are big Beatles pets. So they kind of like, you know what, you have to watch this <laughs> and <laughs> changed my life, my brother's life too. He's not a, mu- he's, he's very musical. He's not a musician, but we were both just like, okay, so this is the end all of all music, you know, like this is like, that's how we were brought up. And that's how I still feel. I, I just feel like they're the best and it's all personal choice, of course, but that was a really deep thing that came out too. Like that, that video, that series that came out. So extensive. Oh my God. So, yeah. so extensive. Uh, perfect way to get to know a band and get to know. Was that your first exposure to the Beatles and that kind of music? It was. Okay. And I think it was the greatest way ever because, you know, my parents are obviously, Everyone that grew up in that time is going to have a different experience. Some people, I'm just referring strictly to the Beatles, but you know, my parents 
at the peak of loving them was Beatlemania, like 63 to 65 ish, that right. the early years. Yeah. Come like maybe their most musical and interesting records, Sgt. Pepper, White Album. They weren't as crazy into those. They oh, obviously yeah. they love Let It Be, Abbey Road, but those there's a couple of records in there which are heralded and considered their best ones. It's just not not, not their cup of tea. So okay, so watching it, they like the earlier rock rock and roll stuff. Yeah, well, that's just they experienced that. They right. grew up wanting to get the haircut, wanting to get the boots, <laughs> wanting to get the everything. You know, yeah. So that's what had the most impact. This kind of the same way that around the same time. This is so, totally different, but th- the same way, like mid nineties, what was some of the most popular music? It was just rock music, guitar oriented rock music, Green Day, Nirvana, Rage Against the Machine, Red Hot Chili Peppers. And were you into all that stuff? You must've been, right? I was huge into that stuff because that's what everyone in school who started playing guitar wanted to learn. Was that your first experience playing guitar? Was like learning Green Day tunes and stuff like that? Yeah, I was learning... The first three things I learned, I think, was Pretty Woman, this song called Bomb Track by Rage Against the Machine. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that Green Day song, Basket Case. Right. And uh, <laughs> do you remember Kids in the Hall? Yeah, of course. So the theme song of Kids in the Hall. Oh, the Shadowy show, Men. Shows my Canadianness. Yes, exactly. Yeah. What attracted me to guitar was guitar being part of an ensemble rather than guitar players. I didn't get into that whole world until quite late, like mm-hmm. when I was 16 or so. You know, and I, when I started playing guitar, I really took a liking to it. Like I kind of just played all day, mm-hmm. uh, learning songs, learning. I wasn't trying to really become amazing or be, become like really sophisticated sounding. I just really enjoyed playing it. And it's, you know, all the friends at school that were playing too, their parents all bought them cooler guitars than the one I had. <laughs> I was the only one left playing and kept going, kept going. And then fast forward, yeah, when I was about 16 or so, I remember... I had this moment of, uh, I think I've said all I can on the guitar, which is so dumb and hilarious, but I was just not inspired right. anymore. I wasn't motivated. I don't think I was listening to the right music to motivate me. My head was in a lot of other places. And, and I remember I had this moment where I was just like, you know what, I'm going to try learning to, learning to play drums and spend more time with drums. So I did that for about a month. And then at that age, that's the first time I heard Scuttle Button. And then obviously the whole record couldn't stand the weather, Stevie uh. Ray Vaughan. And the first time I heard that, like most people, it knocked me on the floor. Scuttle button was the one for me too. <laughs> yeah. Like, holy it's shit. Something, something about it where it's aggressive, but pristine and elegant. It's also as mind boggling as that piece of music is technically. It's also like not impossible to wrap your head around what he's doing. True. It's like accessible, but I mean, understanding it on paper, that that is there. But I mean, he's one of the most replicated or attempted to be replicated type of players too, where yeah, it's amazing how someone so influential can influence so many, but no one uh, really can do it the exactly. same way. Yeah, It's so much of a, a heart and soul type of thing. But hearing that for the first time made me realize, holy shit, Gotta this get is back what I needed the, to hear. Right. Not only am I back into it, but like I need to put some serious work into it. Like I need to so, put my head. So growing up in the nineties, like Stevie Ray had just never entered your consciousness Never. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I just, I just grew up in a scene where it was, and again, I wasn't in a scene. I was just a kid. I was a 10, 11, 12 year old who was watching wrestling and playing basketball with my friends. And you know, the odd time at that point when I was 11 or 12, if my parents were doing shows, I I had already taken that for granted. 
Right. And I was, it was just a thing that. Ah, sound we, check. Yeah, sound check. Do I, do we have to come? <laughs> you know? Uh, so when I first heard that, it made me realize, okay, there's this whole other world of musicianship that this is like a pivotal moment. Like, do I want to take this seriously? Do I like, it just inspired me. And right from that, like from there on in, it's like, I put my head down, started practicing and learning and then never looked up, you know, right. that led me to all the other blues, like obviously BB King, Eric Clapton. And I had heard stuff like that before I heard Clapton and BB and Jimmy, obviously, but it never fully resonated with me until I heard Stevie. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you know, Robin Ford and heard Robin Ford. And it was like, what's all that jazzy stuff he's playing. And mm-hmm. then I guess I got to learn about that. And I, I got really into jazz. You know, luckily my dad has this whole catalog of stuff and wealth of knowledge. And what kind of, what kind of jazz was, was really knocking you out? Well, first I started with just guitar players. You know, I, there was this first record that I started putting so much time into, which was that, uh, Lenny Bro and Chet Atkins standards records, which mm-hmm. is still one of my favorites. Yeah. That's a cool one. Where they're just the two of them and you can hear them go, yeah, Chet, yeah. Stuff like that. <laughs> it's, it's so fun. And it's just so amazing. Were you aware of, of Lenny Bro being a Winnipegger? Was that a thing that you, you grew up I was, with? I was because my dad would always say when we drive down this street, uh, Wellington Crescent in Winnipeg, which is if you want to go from Osborne village to like, Wolseley, you got it. You take this one, and he always would point out this apartment. Hey, Lenny used to live there, and one time he crashed our <laughs> rehearsal when we were just he, like he'd always say the same story. So I was aware of it for sure. Yeah, aware of him being there. Uh, but yeah, Joe Pass. Uh, Joe Pass was a huge one, and through Joe Pass, you know, I started. Man, Oscar Peterson's on a lot of his records. Okay, I got into Oscar Peterson, and man, just the piano playing. Keith Jarrett. Oh, Bill Evans. Oh, like I just. And then, of course, I was like, I need to go farther back. I need to go to the beginning. And, you know, Charlie Parker, Sonny Rollins, Coltrane, Miles. I, I literally bought every record I could, spent all the time listening, absorbing. Did you have any friends or any, like, mentors in that way that were, like, hipping you to that stuff? Or was it, like, a total self-discovery thing? It was a little of both. I, I initially got it started on my own, but around... Maybe I'm getting my ages mixed up, but around like 18 or so, I finished high school and I, I went to university for about two months and I dropped out. I decided, no, I'm fully diving into music. And I started doing gigs. Just, I mean, I started doing gigs when I was like 14, 15, mm-hmm. but I started doing gigs where I was backing up artists when I was like yeah. 18-ish. And I started, a, I started to have like a little circle of friends who were all like-minded all around the same age. And we were all like, Hey, have you heard this yet? Have you heard this? Check out this new thing I'm w- working on. Whoa, cool. What is that? What about this thing? Have you heard this record? What even like, you know, talking about gear, talking about this. And it was a circle of in, like continual inspiration. Mm-hmm. We were all motivating each other to check out as much stuff as possible as well as just pushing our, pushing each other to get better. And we were all, you know, on gigs together. Hey, can you do this gig? I can't do it. Subbing out gigs, all that kind of stuff. So that weighed heavily into it too. Yeah. So as much stuff as I discovered on my own, I discovered a whole other sector of stuff from those friends and whoever else. I think that's the most important thing. It's like the more people you can keep in your circle, just the more knowledge, the more music, the more information you can take in. Cause everyone comes from a different background. Everyone's got have you checked out this obscure Prince record? Have you heard this 
this uh, D'Angelo thing that was never released? Have you heard this uh, Jeff Buckley thing that was never? It's just, you never know what you're going to step on, and it's amazing. Did you did the jazz obsession at that age? Did it ever lead to you doing jazz? Like, were you ever actually at the point where you were playing jazz gigs comfortably? Yeah, I don't consider myself a proper jazz guitarist. I understand the fundamentals. I understand what's going on and the vocabulary and I love listening to it and playing it. But like, would I put my hand up to say I should be worthy of a slamming jazz gig compared to my friends who are actual devoted jazz players who also went to school? Absolutely not. It's just not also not where my mind is at as a player. Um, Back then when you were like 17, 18 and getting like, and you were like really into Joe Pass or whatever, was it ever something that you were considering like diving in so deeply with, or was it always just like, well, I dig that, but I, I dig the Steve Ray stuff as well. And it was, it was. And I think that those formative years of when you really start taking something seriously, you got, you got to try a few things to realize what's the right path. Right. And I auditioned for jazz school along with a few other friends of mine who have had very nice, fantastic music careers so far and continue to do so. And we all uh, failed. Really? <laughs> we all didn't make it. Yeah. yeah. And it was the best thing that happened. And oddly enough, you know, a few years, not even a few years after that, like I, I would be the guy that the dean, he'd call me for gigs. Oh, yeah. College, which was very odd. Uh, so it goes to show it's like it didn't I'm so glad I didn't go down that path because it, it's not it wasn't me. It's not that going to jazz school was the wrong thing. It just so was not. Yeah, I think a lot of people just end up doing that because it's like they, they want to be a musician, but they haven't necessarily figured out what that means or how their path is going to like they, they just don't have a path laid out for them at, at that point. So jazz school seems to be an avenue that's like available to people and. So a lot of people that I knew that were my age end up going to jazz school, not because they were wanting to be jazz musicians, but just seems like a a good way to learn when you're at that age, I guess. And a lot of people are into jazz at that age. Sometimes I think it takes going to a jazz school to realize like, hey, I'm not cut out to be a jazz musician. Yeah, I think it's it's like you said, it is available, but like you got to be you got to be good. They like aren't just anybody. Um People want to learn and they they're specifically want to learn from professors that are there. And it's about building that network. The network and community you build in a music scene is vital. The one you build in a college or university capacity is the same thing. And it's a whole separate scene. And, you know, once college is done, where do you go from there? Well, you have all these like-minded friends that are in the same position. You, you got to like, they all stick together. It's, it's very important. Were there some, were there some teachers at, at the, I don't know what the, I don't know what the jazz school in Winnipeg is, but were there some teachers there that were particularly influential to like your generation of players? Uh, University of Manitoba. I mean, the only guitar professor was this guy, Larry Roy, who in Winnipeg is one of the top guitar players, jazz guitar players in the city and has been for amazing, amazing player. So I was definitely looking forward to studying with him. And, you know, he's, he's a friend now and we've been on gigs together and he's a lovely guy. There was another guy in town. His name is Greg Lowe. Oh yeah. Sadly passed away a few years ago and he's friends with my parents from before I was a kid. And uh, he's done a couple of records with like Jack Semple. Maybe, you know, Jack. Yeah, I know Jack. Greg is also, 
Greg was an amazing guitar player. One of those guys that was really into jazz, you could tell, but kind of interested in everything. He's the kind of guy that would put on a show doing just the music of Joni Mitchell and he would fly to Vancouver and take 15 guitars with him in all the different tunings and then do a show with Jack, which is like the Chet Atkins meets it's just like every yeah. guitar on stereo. I don't even know how to describe it. Uh, and then he would do his own thing, which was like fusion instrumental guitar music, mm-hmm. just a monster. And he took me under his wing. He, in fact, I remember when mm-hmm. I auditioned for jazz school, he, uh, I had a couple lessons with him just to help me. And he just, I always remember he always wanted to see me uh, succeed and he would always throw my name out for certain gigs. Mm-hmm. He'd always recommend me. He'd always have, we'd do lessons sometimes and he'd be like, at the end of it, he said, ah, oh, man, I don't think I taught you anything today. Like, I'd be there for two hours. Like, uh, don't, don't pay me. I didn't, I didn't really? you. Yeah. He was just that kind of guy. And he's such a great guy. Such a, it's so sad that he's passed away, but uh, he was very influential as well. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of great guitar players in Winnipeg. Yeah. Older than me uh, that I grew up getting to see weekly going to play who were who were some of those guys so there's greg larry uh murray pulver who's a friend of mine he's he's co-produced my records yeah with me he was he was always like playing a weekly gig uh who are some of the others now of course i'm blanking this is what always happens <laughs> there's a guy named pat wright he uh-huh. lives in toronto now he he played in a, in a band called all the king's men they played every sunday which was like a jam. What were the game. what were the venues that you were hanging out at when you were like eighteen? Like, was it was the I guess the times changed? Was there? What were the other places that was that were times happening? changed? Uh, the King's Head was a popular place for music, which is this pub in the Exchange. Mm-hmm. That was where the Sunday night All the King's Men thing was. Okay, they'd have bands Thursday to Saturday. A uh, place called the Cavern, which was under a place called the Toad in the Hole. Which was the, is an awesome was the Blue Note going or was that like before your time? Blue Note was just before my time. Sadly, I totally missed that whole experience. And any of my friends that got to experience the Blue Note all experienced it underage. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's like the Bella Vista. There's Shannon's. There's the Cavern, like I said. Um, were you ever, were you ever hanging out in the like the big Dave McLean times change Sunday night scene at all? Was that ever your thing? Like the blues jam thing was that big for you? Uh, the, the the blues jam on Sunday specifically wasn't big for me. I love Dave, and every time I've played with him, it's always a treat. I've played guitar for a guy named Ron Paley mm-hmm. for over a decade. I played in his band, and he would do a lot of event band gigs, yeah. but also had a big band, has a big band, so there'd be so many times where we'd be doing concerts out at the Lyric Theater in the park or a theater casino gig and he'd have guests. So like Big Dave would come yeah, or Leslie Gore or like someone big or someone local. It was always, so Big Dave would do a lot of those and Mm -hmm. he was fantastic. Uh, A guy that plays with Big Dave is my friend, Chris Carmichael. Oh yeah, he's great. Do you know Chris? Yeah. So Chopper is, yeah, another one of those guitar players that I grew up watching and just being floored by. And we played in a band together for a while too, which was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. So well, our players locally for sure. What was your life like when you were like 19, 20? So you're gigging around a lot. Like, were you playing many times a week kind of thing? Or, I mean, Winnipeg seems like that kind of town, especially at that point, I guess, like in the late nineties or whatever, there must've been a ton of gigs, right? 
for sure. This this now was like 2004, 2005. Okay. But yeah, I was a yes man. I was trying to get any and every gig I could. So yeah. like I like I said at the beginning of this, how did I get my real start? I booked my own gig. So I had a band with uh, David Landreth and my friend Paul Yee, and we were called Groovy Mustache. Best band <laughs> name ever. The band was, you know, I sang, fronted. It was trio. It was mostly covers, mm-hmm. obscure covers that I liked to play that the guys wanted to play where we'd stretch out. Like what? What kind of stuff? Stuff from, you know, we'd play everything from The Meters to Stevie Ray Vaughan to Galactic to Frank Zappa to... That's all over the place. Doyle Bramhall, did I say that already? Uh, to The Police to uh, Little Feet, um, I okay. Love It, a little of everything. Lester Quitsaw, like literally such a random eclectic mix of music. And mm-hmm. it was a chance for us to make money. You know, I, I was booking us gigs, but it was also a chance to just stretch out and people would come see the band and be like, Hey, yeah, that band's okay. But uh, <laughs> do you want to come play guitar on this artist's record? Do you want to come play on this tour or, and the same with the other guys, they'd say, yeah, band's okay. Do you want to, we need a bass player though for this thing. So it was like a, an outlet to get more gigs. Perfect. That's exactly what you need. Which is exactly what we need. Uh, so I was doing that. And then, yeah, so start, more gigs started happening like that. Hey, we got this residency for an artist that just signed with Sony. Uh, she's doing two months of Tuesday residencies at Dylan's Irish Pub with the full band, full production, just so we can get her in shape. Mm-hmm. So it was just stuff like that. Yep. Do a lot of showcases. Um, I wasn't really doing too much traveling at that point yet. I was still, you know, I, I would be that guy that would play a, a cocktail dinner thing from six to eight with like a nice shirt on playing standards, run into my car, change, <laughs> put on slightly cooler clothes, run to uh, the pyramid or run to the West End, play a, an actual cool show with someone. Yep. And then check my watch and scoot over to the times change or, or somewhere else around midnight and sit in for the last two sets with my other friend's band or, right. or, or literally sometimes it would be a, a real gig where I'd be like, Hey guys, I, I can be there for 1145. Can you just set up an amp for me? And I, I'll, sh- I'll I swear I'll make it there on time. <laughs> you roll in of, at 1144. Yeah. A lot of negotiating, <laughs> but Winnipeg is small enough that you can get around. <laughs> and were you playing slide guitar at that point or had that not like, at what point did that start for you? That started I mean, I'd always played slide, like just, I don't really know what I'm doing. I grabbed one slide at Long McQuaid and uh, it's hard. You know, I didn't know anything about (laughs) setting up your guitar. I didn't know anything about the right slide you should have. I just did it. Um, Around 2000, I'd say only maybe a year or so after that, I started playing more slide. Mm -hmm. I saw Derek Trucks play and it was like, that was really good. That was, in fact, I was in tears, but it wasn't, it it wasn't. (laughs) It wasn't like, I want to do that. Oh, that was more, interesting. Yeah, it was more, that was more like, that's untouchable. It was, was just like, totally foreign as, as to what he was up to. Yeah, we just, we just need one Derek. That's, that's fine. What, when I had the experience of like, wow, that's really speaking to me was when I first heard Kevin Bright mm-hmm. and Sisters Euclid and his records with Harry Makes. Yeah. Uh, I heard that and it was just, first of all, that led me to experimenting with open tuning, drop tuning, chordal stuff, droning stuff. It just, it opened this whole world. And, and that's what really spoke to me. I just never really cared for slide 
in a bluesy environment. Mm -hmm. Not that there's anything wrong with the Delta blues kind of stuff. It's just never what caught my ear. It mm -hmm. was more this melodic. It was just, that's, it just spoke to me. And I kind of, I was like, I need to, I need to, <laughs> I need to understand what's going on here. That, that really spoke to me. So that I started putting a lot more time into slide just because I was inspired. So what kind of tunings were you experimenting with? Like the standard, like open E, open, open G, those kind of things. Honestly, just other than standard tuning, I, I, I took a guitar and tuned it to open E. Yeah. And I said, if I, if I can transfer everything I know to open E, then that's good enough for me. Okay. And eventually I learned that, Hey, I can just be an open D and it's the same thing. Oh, I can be an open C. It's the same thing. Um, you know, open G is a whole different ballgame. I just haven't spent yeah. time with that. Right. But I took it, I took an open E guitar. I had a road worn strat open E and I started taking it on every gig that I had sometimes Actually, more more often than not, it was like, oh, I've made a mistake. What am I doing? <laughs> I make sure the people that are hiring me don't give me the full-on stink eye here because right. I'm butchering their their music. It probably wasn't that bad, but that's how I learned. Trial by fire, mm -hmm. application. It put me on the spot. You know, It was like, okay, if this is my A major bar chord, now it's this. How do I... How do I change everything up? Would you spend a night like doing a whole gig in an open tuning? Yeah, I mean, any, yeah. any, gig, any gig that was slightly more casual, like let's say it was a three setter somewhere. Yeah. And hands down, I would take that guitar. Yeah. And just, and and just play go. that the whole night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'll, that'll teach you fast. I'm just a guy that learns by application, by doing it in context with people on stage or in some kind of playing capacity. If I, I could sit there all day at home and, okay, so it's this. But if I make it, make enough mistakes and then I learn from those mistakes in context, that's, that's what really sticks with me. But I was already playing a lot of slide, just learning other people's slide parts on gigs that I was doing. And people would mm -hmm. often say, hey, that sounded really good. Uh, why don't you do more of the uh, the slide thing on this song too? It's like, oh, all right. I like it. Never really. It's not that I was hanging on to like lightning in a bottle. That's not what I'm saying at all. But there was something natural about playing slide that I guess yeah. other people could see that too. And yeah, eventually later I realized, oh, okay, so need to raise the action. Need to find a slide that fits my finger properly. I always played on my pinky. It just felt right, even though Derek. Kevin, uh, who else that I really enjoyed? Robbie McIntosh. I think he plays on his ring too. All these guys were, were ring players. Yeah. Um, Bonnie Raitt, middle finger. Right. I guess Sonny Landreth is a, is a pinky guy too, of course. Um, it's just that I just went with what felt right. I, and then I started learning, ah, so if I tune down, I should put heavier strings on and, and all this stuff. It just became a process. A process and yeah. so many people struggle with it because and I know why because I did too it's 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 a type of technique that requires a specific kind of setup as yeah. you know you can't just pick up any guitar off the the wall at a guitar store at, at the NAMM show and just expect to to go for it, it although really... you know there's some people that can't I couldn't play slide on somebody's guitar I'm exactly like what you say if I pick somebody's guitar up and had a slide in my hand it would just sound ridiculous it would, <laughs> I, I wouldn't be able to function at all but given my guitar it's like home so, but 
but there are people that can can play really great slide on like a totally normal you know who's incredible at that is jack pearson mm, that guy just he's just like on a normal he tunes his g string up to g sharp and then he's like ready to go and it's just as normal strat so it's standard tuning but g to g sharp yeah Oh wow. And he's incredible. And it, he, it's like he doesn't skip a beat. He'll just he just plays one guitar all night and he and he's just as fluent on the slide as he is on the non-slide stuff. And to me that just like there's no way I could do that. Wow. And I I know you use like crazy heavy strings. I sort of I'm in the middle like I don't use super heavy strings, but they're heavy. They're too heavy to play like bendy note kind of stuff. Um Well, here's the thing that I only use heavy heavy strings if I'm like on a baritone or in oh, okay. C. So yeah. it's all about matching the tension. So right. if I'm an E or, you know, open E, I like 11s to 12s. That's kind of my go-to just standard. I like a fight. I play hard. Yeah. So, you know, 10s, I think 10s just for slide in general are just too light. Yeah. So it's just kind of working up this ladder of like, okay, 10, 11 or 12s for E. If I go to D, well then probably 12 or 13 yeah. would work if I go to C 14 to 15, yeah. if I go to B 16 to 17. And that's exactly how and why. So if you match the tension, right, if you played my guitar, if I passed it to you through this zoom call right now, which is tuned to B standard and you tried to bend up on, on the B string, you'd be surprised. You say, Oh, it's, it just feels like normal guitar. Hmm. Because it does, because the tension is matched, even though the strings are way heavier, yeah. it's not like playing you know, Stevie Ray Vaughan style 13s right. in E flat. Right. Like that's crazy. Or yeah. I have a friend, Josh Smith, who plays 13s in standard tuning. Wow. And that, those are like wires. Wow. And that's the kind of thing you really need to keep stay conditioned for because it's, yeah. it's a whole different thing. So this is, it, it comes off crazy and then you think about it and you try it and you're like, oh, I see. It's actually not crazy. So when you got really into it, you mentioned Kevin Bright, you mentioned Sonny Landreth. I don't know if he was a big influence for you. Like it seems like no, you do I, enough yeah. of the behind the slide stuff where he was probably an influence. At, Oddly at enough, I I never really got into Sonny much. Okay. I know there's a lot of similarities, but it, it was mostly guys like Derek and Kevin. And, I, I you know, it's about listening, taking your heroes for anything. Like, you know, yeah. if you like Stevie Ray Vaughan, Hey, go check out who he listened to. Yeah. Albert King, Jimi Hendrix, Freddie so King. Did that ever lead you to, you know, get interested in the, in the, the blues players? Or did you, did you just like kind of never go there? Like as far as, you know, oh. lis- listening to all the Delta blues player that were playing slide. I mean, uh, yeah, not as much. Yeah. yeah. All the other blues players though, big time, but just yeah. with slide, it just never, it just wasn't where my head was at. And it's still, and then with, with, with Derek Trucks, like after having your mind blown by seeing him live, did you ever come back around and like sit down with his music and like figure out what he was doing to a certain extent? Of course. I mean, there's, yeah. there's a lot of things I've tried to learn that he does because it's just so amazing. And the way he phrases things on one string, yeah, it, unbelievable. Absolutely. And he, he made me want to go listen to Dwayne and, right. and you know what it is? For such a legend, too, it's like it, it just didn't speak to me the same way, mm-hmm. personally. Uh, you know, I love Lowell George, Rakuter. Um, again, and and I go back to the Beatles. There is some George slide playing in Beatles and on his solo material, obviously, yeah. which yeah. I'm very much into. Where it's just unbelievable. In fact, on that Beatles anthology, they did two songs. Those the 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 Jeff Lynne ones, yeah. 
Real Love and Free as a Bird. And one of those songs. Free as a Bird has that slide melody thing. Free as on a Bird. It. Such a great slide solo. And I remember mm-hmm. seeing that when I was just eight years old. And I think subconsciously it really stayed with me as it was such a cool sound and such an emotive way to get a melody out. But I love, I love all those players. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of slide players out these days too that are doing a lot. Like Blake Mills is doing a lot of yeah. great stuff. Uh, Jason Isbell's playing really interesting, nice slide. Yeah. They just, it's amazing. The list goes on and on and on. But it was, you, you know how it is. It's like you, you, you latch onto one or two things that really speaks to you and you kind of, yeah. You, I hear you. That's your bubble. <laughs> okay. At what point did you run into Joey Landreth? Like, how did that all happen? And I mean, you guys are probably around the same age and, and yeah. like, both incredible players, great singers. Uh, how, how did that happen where you guys hooked up? Uh, we've just known each other forever. His girlfriend in high school was in my band when we were really 15 years old. And he came over to pick her up once and we met there. And then a couple of years later, uh, I was on a gig backing up a singer with this guy, Dave Landreth. And uh, before the rehearsal, he said, or someone said in the band, we're looking to fill one more, gu- like we want to have two guitar players in this band. And he said, oh, my brother could probably do it. I'll bring my brother. And then the next day he showed up and I'm like, oh my God, you guys are brothers. Oh my, and, you know? So uh, we've just known each other forever. Almost 20 years, forever. Wow. So we just grew up. All those guys are in that same circle. Yeah. We all kind of grew up musically together, passing off gigs to each other, listening to the same music, being inspired by the same things, mm-hmm. hanging out all the time, going to each other's gigs, doing just stuff like that. So seems like a crazy coincidence, but it's just your, your people that you grew up with. <laughs> I- Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. first heard about you and saw you i saw you here in nashville i saw you a couple times before that too at some festivals and stuff with the the bros landreth were you in that band officially or like what was your status in that band how did that all work you were in the band i guess right yeah uh really it's 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 an artist gig yeah that's their band yeah just like any anyone that tours under their own name that's their band it was it was kind of it does kind of come off like it's a band, but really we're, we're, we're sidemen in that okay. band. Yeah. I did do a little bit of writing uh, for their last record with them, just on like a couple songs, but like, we're just, yeah. The, the, everyone else in the band is just 
Is this the band just like any other sideman gig? How do you approach, you know, like in that band, I guess you have to kind of leave room for Joey to be featured. And and I remember that sort of like the first time I saw you guys, he was the the one that that sort of drew the attention. Like he was singing leads and he was playing more of the guitar solos and stuff. You were playing quite a bit of lap steel, as I remember. That oh, night. so that would have been that would have been uh, kind of earlier in the days. Maybe. Uh, I think for a year, half a year, I brought a lap steel out on a bunch on okay. a handful, which were some songs. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, I, I mean, what what's your mindset like with that? Like, as far as you know, what you're doing right now, which we'll, get, we'll which we'll get into, of course. But like, as a as a front man, there's one thing. But like, when you have a a gig that's a solid touring gig, and you're like a side guy more, um, how how do you approach those differently? It just comes down to serving the song. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not about it's not about you. You're there to, to play uh, the songs that, you know, you're there to fit into someone else's picture, so to speak. Yeah. And that's their band. That's their songs. That's their parts. That's, you know, uh, I'm, I'm there. I was there to fill in the other gaps. They were, they were touring with the keyboard player for a little bit mm-hmm. at the very, very, very beginning. And then that changed. So I kind of came in to fill in the gaps that the piano was that the keys were doing, which okay. is already hard to do because if you're playing Whirly and B3, you could have 10 guitar players in a band and that will never fill it up the same way. Yeah. So I came in, you know, trying to uh, emulate some of those elements. And that's a big reason why the lap steel was in play at the beginning. Yeah. And then it became more apparent to uh, just make it more guitar heavy so to speak. So, yeah, I mean, like I, I solos were always passed around. Uh, there was a lot of parts. It was, it's, but it, really it's about, it was about serving songs mm-hmm. and doing a lot of singing. And that right. was the, that was the primary focus mm-hmm. on that gig. Yep. So, yeah. And, and you guys toured all over the place for, for years. Like, did you eventually have to, to withdraw from that band or did it, was there a break enough for you to start, pursuing your solo stuff more? Well, there was a break. There was actually a hiatus, which happened right before I moved to Ireland, oddly enough. Okay. <laughs> so that just worked out. And then there was a, a couple of things here and there, and I, w- I would do a little bit of flying back and forth. And then it just it just got to a point where it just didn't, it made sense to just do something different. And, and I was already starting... I already had my first album in the bag. I yeah. started touring and I was just kind of too deep in it. I was like, okay, um, time to, <laughs> I, I kind of have to, like, it's time to see this through. Yeah. Yeah. It just made, it just made perfect sense. Yeah. You guys were road dogging for quite a while, right? Yeah. I mean, 2005, the year 2015, I think we must've been on the road for like 250 days of that year. That's a lot. I got, I got married that year. It it's was hard. very difficult. Uh, yeah, I do not. That, that actually made me learn a lot. It made me, first of all, it made me, I think all of us wanted to quit music <laughs> at one point because it just, it would, you know, I mean, it was a very emotional year. Like we wanted Juno. Uh, there was a lot of great stuff. There was a lot of downs. There was, you know, I got married. It was great, but it was such a stressful, crazy year because you're in a van for 90% of it. Yeah. And uh, it, it yeah, once I started touring under my own, as me, it's that's that stuck with me, and I think that stuck with everyone who was involved in that. Like, 
just can't go. It, it, it's more about quality over quantity. How does that influence what you do now? I realize this year and last year is not a, a good <laughs> judge of that, but has did that have an impact in the way that you think about touring? Like do you do it more selectively, you do shorter term stuff. Is that what you're going to do? You know, when things do open up again, will that be more of your approach? It has been my approach. I've been like before pandemic, I was touring basically since my first tour as me was 2018, uh, sorry, end of January, 2018. Mm -hmm. So it's been three years Yeah, and it's always just been about quality and quality over quantity. Mm -hmm. And something we have now that we didn't have six, seven years ago is just analytical research on your platforms. You know, you can really see whether it's through Spotify, whether it's through Instagram, Facebook, geo-targeted things, you can see where your followings are. You can see where it actually makes sense to go. So when I first, my first tour in the US under my own name, this was before I had any agents or anything like that. Pardon me. I I just picked major markets and I I picked a couple cities. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go to LA. I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to go to Nashville. I'm going to go to Austin. But I know that I actually, for some reason, have a a nice following in Charlotte. So I'm going to do a gig in Charlotte. And then I'm going to go to Portland because I, it's just random things like that. And I, cause you're I hearing just, from people or you're just seeing like in your Spotify pl- both, uh, both. accounts. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, and, and I could only do this because of the way I did it, where I just flew to these places and I used a local band in each city, which is, mm-hmm. I haven't done that in like two years. Um, but it allowed me to do it that way. Uh, but yeah, it, it now, like when things go back to normal and before the pandemic, I was, Luckily, 2020, I was able to do full UK tour and this full tour in Sweden. And those, the UK has always been a strong market for me. I've, I've done mm-hmm. about four tours there already as under my own name. So I know which places are, are strong. And you know how it goes. You, you go one place, you come back next year. Hey, maybe there's 20 more people. You go back the next year. Oh my God, there's 50 more people. Yeah. You go back the next year. Oh my God, it's sold out or on paper. That's, that's kind of the example. And Sweden, I, I, I had gone and done one or two shows the year prior. So I knew that there was some, I had laid some foundation down there. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's all about, yeah, I've said it a million times now, but quality over quantity. So now, you know, my agents look at touring the way that agents do, which is how can we get you on the road as much as possible? How many places could we hit? But we, I still will try to reel it in a bit and say, well, do we really have to do this yet? Or do we really have to, cause I've been there. I've been, I've gone to Lexington, Kentucky with the band and played to just the sound man. Right. And then <laughs> gone to uh, yeah. Cincinnati the next night and play to just the sound man. Yeah. And yeah, I get it. That shit will kill you, man. It'll kill you. The, a big part of touring. I get it is like showing that you're on tour. Great night in Cincinnati. Anyone can make it look like it was fun. If you show a picture of yourself in the van, Hey, we, we played to nobody, but we can post that we were here. People go, wow, you're in Cincinnati. That's just the game. Um, but I, it's just a different thing now because I'm, I'm very fortunate and grateful to have, you know, a little, a little bit of a following and a platform that I can depend on where I, I put a lot of energy on my online. Yeah, you're really good at that. That's a- and, and that really helps get the word out. It's mm-hmm. never kind of been easier in some ways to get the word out and just, yeah. it's all little highlight reels of, Hey, this is what I do. But like, 
when I come to your town, come get the full thing, essentially, which was not popular five, six years ago. Yeah. Do you, so when you do all that stuff, because those, those are really effective, you know, there's a lot of sort of guitar oriented things that I've seen that you do. Um, do you just film those at home is, or do you have somebody that helps you with all that stuff? Yeah, I do it all at home or I do it sometimes if, I mean, I used to be a lot more, try to get interesting with it if I'm on the road or if, you know, I'm hanging out with Bernie Marsden and he lets me play the beast, Les Paul. I say, Hey, can you just film 30 seconds of this? Or, Hey, I'm uh, meeting so-and-so. Can you get a picture of us jamming or just shit like that? Yeah. But yeah, it's just, I, I just try to social media and like Instagram and, and stuff to me is just, online promotion and highlight reels. It's right. not who I am. not a Instagram guitarist. I'm, that's my platform to say, this is what I do. Here's a snippet of it. Yeah. Follow along and listen to the music. Come to a show when I come to your town. And you know what? I, I should also say that when I was living in Ireland for a couple of years, I would go to the UK a lot. And I started doing a bunch of videos with my friends at Anderton's music, which is a, big YouTube channel, but they're also one of the biggest music stores in the country. Yeah. But they have a gigantic YouTube following. And I would just go with my friend, Pete, who runs the channel, and we would just kind of act like fools, <laughs> not take ourselves seriously. And we would demo the guitars and demo the pedals or the amps. And they still do these videos. And they were doing those videos long before me. But I, ha I, had, I have people that come to shows that say, hey, I'm here because so-and-so recommended you or, Hey, I'm here because that shit works, you. man. Yeah. Or like, you know, if someone comes to a show and says, Hey, I'm, I'm here because I saw you demo that overdrive pedal on blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I go, great. Thanks whatever. for coming. Yeah. I don't whatever care. brings you. Yeah. Totally. All good. Cause at the end of the day, everyone's still interested enough and it brings everyone together to the, the, the main goal, which is check out the music, you know? <laughs> Let's talk about your new record. Tell me a little bit about the the process for you, like as far as how the creation started, what your writing process was like. That seems to to be something that you're always working on. You know, I'm interested in in what your what your songwriting process was and how it went for this record. Like, did you write 50 songs and whittle it down, or were these like the first 15 that you wrote since your last record? How did that all work for you? The first record, I had eight songs. And I recorded seven of them <laughs> and I added three little quick instrumental interludes on there to make yeah. it a 10 track record. I finished, I think I signed off on mastering, signed off on artwork printing by mid summer, 2018. The next day I started writing, um, started writing with friends, started writing by myself, just started getting new ideas. I, I need to be in a mind space where I'm not working on something else. Yeah. To, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're the same way, but I just like, my brain cannot handle it. So once that was finally done, I was like, ah, I can think about new music. And so we recorded this new album in December, 2019. So it was about a year and a half from when I finished all the work on record one. Yeah. So between that year and a half, I had been doing a lot of touring in that time. So as, as I wrote more songs, I was able to kind of workshop them on the road, on the road and play them at shows which helps a lot because it kind of gives you an idea of what works, what doesn't work, if it's worth doing. And I can't write when I'm touring. It's, it's just all when I'm home. Yeah, I know what you mean. And I wrote about 20 songs. All of which you started gigging with between records? Oh, no. I, I, out of the ones I, I, I played live, maybe five of them. Okay. And I whittled that to 12 songs. So 12 songs are on the record. Yeah. 
which is pretty high. Like I, I could have easily done yeah. 10, but I just felt strong about the 12. The way the process is for me, whether I'm writing a tune by myself or if I'm co-writing with others, if I'm feeling somewhat strong about the song or motivated about it, I'll record it. I'll voice memo it. Yeah. And then I'll, I'll do a full demo of it. So, you know, I'll program drums or I'll get a friend to play drums on it. I'll play bass, guitar, sing. First take of everything. Mm-hmm. And by first take, I mean, it's just not very good, but it's good enough for something to listen to and reference. Yeah. And, you know, there's something called demoitis, which yeah. we all know, which is very dangerous because you can get really attached to your demos. Yeah. And by me not really putting in the work, as in like, I'm not doing five vocal takes. I literally just do one and it might be very bad, but it's enough to listen to it. It motivates me to say, if this song is good enough, I can do a better job. Think of of the, yeah. yeah. Right. Think how good you'll do it when you, when that's you actually. A, that's a good idea, actually, to not be precious with demos if you're going to do demos. Because it sounds like you do pretty fully realized demos. I do. Yeah. But I, exactly. I just don't see what the, what the point is if you're going to do it the right way after. Right. I can. If a song's good, you can get the essence of a song from a poorly made demo. <laughs> That's yeah, not yeah. even, you know? Uh, so did you write, I, I noticed a couple of co-writes, like you you wrote with Murray Pulver, I think, on at least yeah. one song. Are, are there other people that you co-write with a lot? Or Yeah, Murray, Murray is a is a co-conspirator. We've, we've written a lot of tunes together and, yeah. and he produced the first record as well. So he just has an understanding of who I am as a person and as, a, as an artist. Um, this record, I also wrote with my friend Alexa Dirks, who I was, we've, we had a band like in our early twenties too. We've been writing music for almost 15 years. Okay. She goes by the name Begonia. She's got a crazy, awesome solo thing going on as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, two friends of mine in Nashville, I call them the Jasons, Jason Gant, who mixed my first record and Jason Nix wrote a couple tunes with them on this record. And we've been writing a shit ton since this record. Um, and then a couple other, couple other friends. How do you like to co-write? Like, how do you, how does that work for you? I love it. Yeah. I, I get so in my head when I write on my own and I'm comfortable writing on my own, but there's something about, I'll bring an, every time I co-write with someone, I bring an idea that's already existing. I think that's important. I think it's important. Like if I show up and say, all right, let's try to come up with something and someone else suggests an idea to me and that's what we write. it, It it's not me. Like it's not something that I might be a great song, but I, I'm not in the business of just wanting to take a song if it's good. I want to take a song and yeah. record it, perform it if it's my idea and my song. Uh, but I just love, I love the idea of like, hey, what do you think of this idea? And they go, oh, that's super cool. But what if we change that one chord? What if we change this lyric? And I'd be like, oh yeah, wouldn't have thought of that. And yeah. vice versa. That kind of stuff is really great. And it's just there to, the most important thing is reassurance. I think this is a shitty idea, but let me play it. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and they go, that's great. What are you talking about? It's like, okay. I get so in my head. So I really enjoy it. First of all, it's, it's a great hang. Yeah. Songwriting is so hard and it's like working out. You, you, you got to keep conditioning. You got to keep doing it or else you get out of shape and doing it with other people. It inspires me. It inspires me to see how people put words together. It's, it's inspiring to see how people hear music and chords. I'll be completely honest. The music side is always the easier side for me. Yeah. You struggle with the lyric stuff. Yeah. I mean, some days there's some songs where I woke up and I just had a full verse kind of written in my head 
with kind of a melody behind it and I wrote it down and and then other days I'm just sitting there staring at a piece of paper for yeah. three hours. Yeah. You never know. <laughs> However, for, for music, that just like that can flow at any time. Arrangement. Yeah. Everyone's got a different there's no right or wrong, which is kind of the coolest part about it. How hands on with the guitar are you? Like obviously, you know, what I hear in this record is that you know, you're wanting to focus on the songs, but still the guitar is obviously a huge part of what you do. And it's kind of the focal point sonically of the record. Are you developing the guitar parts at the same time that you're coming or do you write the song completely and then start working on guitar? Or how do you, how do you deal with that? Song is bare bones first, unless, you know, the, there's an odds, like there's a song called it's you and there's a song, uh, nobody else and heart by heart, which all start with like a very clearly like guitar forward kind of hooky thing. And it started with that. And then I wrote the song, Every, everything else is just like chords, lyrics, melody, everything else comes after in the studio. And, and then a, a thing that helps greatly is when I demo these songs, I start to get little ideas, okay. even if I don't execute them to perfection, they kind of sit. It's, it's almost like putting your ideas down on something. That's what the demo is. So when we go to the actual recording, uh, situation, not only, Hey drummer, here's the drums I programmed. Can you kind of just do that vibe, but like do them way better. Hey bass, can you kind of cop the baseline? Right. And then for me, it's here are the guitar parts and the sounds let's do that, but grow and maybe change it and do better. Um, first record. I was so, I was so used to playing on other people's records. I didn't know what the fuck I was supposed to do on my own record. Really? It was so weird. I was so gr- grateful to have Murray there because I was second guessing every single part and yeah. little nuance and it worked out. I think I'm very proud of it, but this time around, it's like I had that first experience of like, what the hell am I doing? Mm-hmm. I was very sure of myself. I was very sure of the songs, mainly because I had more time. I had sat with these songs longer. I had demoed them like it. Yeah. Just more prepared for the experience. And you're right. I'm, I'm, it's not supposed to be guitar music at all. These are songs, but the guitar is my tool of choice and it is the focal point musically to get to put out all those textures and sounds. Yeah. There was a lot of time spent just dialing it in, getting the right part, making moments. It's all about moments and building a song. So so a song like Coming Back uh, sort of jumped out to me as one where there's like, you know, you're sort of dealing with harmonically it's like it's almost like a, an old soul tune but yeah. you've got those layers of like those fuzz guitars going on and stuff like that are those things that you have mapped out in your head as well or are you winging that in the studio or is that all a studio creation or you know what's your what's what's the actual layering process like in your head well, that one, yeah that one was quite winged in the studio uh the demo of it is just basically a clean guitar playing clean nice okay and the verses and then the choruses I knew that I wanted these big uh, these big downbeat chords and then this refrain on the guitar going that that was already there but texture wise and all like fuzz and all those that's a very dense song there's a lot of guitar tracks on that song it it, it actually doesn't come across that way but uh, yeah I, I guess there probably are right I did a video I do these videos on YouTube where I break down some of the sessions and I just talk about it. And I was going through that song the other day and I was like, geez, this is dense. There's a lot. <laughs> and you wouldn't exactly, you wouldn't know because one of the tracks has three overdubs, same 
kind of voicings, but like one of them might have a, a rotary effect. One might have a, a trem on it. One might be straight up dry. Those kind of things is what's going on. The key word for me is different. I always want to just try to do something that isn't what the ear expects or what's been done already. So many things just get repeated and we kind of can't help it. In some ways in music, it's a kind of all been set. <laughs> so with parts and, and stuff like that, I, I just try to be creative and have fun. I get most inspired in the studio and my team who I always do my records with are equally keen to chase sounds and chase layers and elements. So did you develop your guitar sounds in the studio or did you come in with everything like pretty mapped out, like strictly from a guitar tone point of view? I came in with the sound already. It's, it's essentially my live rig. Yeah. I brought in a bunch of extra pedals, but they were primarily just different fuzzes. Okay. I don't mess around too much with crazy delay and modulation effect. There's an underlying echo on on what you're doing. Like I I, I don't know what you, what your standard live rig is, but there's an echo thing that happens on a good chunk of what you're playing. Are you using an echo pedal constantly or I'm using a slapback a lot of the time. Okay. I think so that's, that's what I'm hearing. So if you use a slapback and you kind of set the mix a bit higher so it, it it's it's quite prominent and yep. if you don't use reverb, it sticks out like crazy. Oh, so you're not, you don't have reverb on the amp. I use reverb insane amounts, but on the record, things, things change. So right. there's a lot of songs where guitars will be swimming in reverb and then other tracks will be completely dry, but with the slap turned up and it just gives more, it just makes it more 3D to my yeah. ears. Do you use a tape echo or do you have a, do you have a pedal for that? We had a tape echo at the studio. I, I think we used it on one song. What we used more at the studio, like other than my own pedals, I have a Victoria Reverberato, which I use yeah. all the time for recording. I have one of those too. You have got one of I those? Yeah. yeah. Amazing. The yeah. big one? No, I have the ammo case one. The smaller one, yeah. yeah. It's so good. Um, so I use that. And then we also had one of those old Fender Echo Reverbs, which is those oil can delays. Oh, those things are awesome. They're a total pain in the ass, but they're awesome. They're awesome if they work. Totally. If, if they don't work, they kind of suck. But Paul's, he's got his work in, or at least he had it working at the time. And that provided, you know what it is. It's just that beautiful, soft. I think of that kind of delay as like gloss versus matte. You know what I mean? It's super 3D and crazy when it when it works. Yeah. But for, just, for anyone that's listening that doesn't know, it's like literally a little can, like a tuna can of oil with a drum, a metal drum inside spinning and your sound actually travels through the um, oil in some crazy way and gets spun around by this drum. <laughs> and it's like a trippy, it's almost like a Leslie effect. It's a great pedal. I saw one on Reverb a few months ago, and I almost spent way too much money on it. Just because they're so temperamental, I don't think they're worth what they go for. But I've had a few Morley oil cans in my day, and they are cool, but yeah, they generally start falling apart and don't work particularly well. But there's a... There's, have you tried that Black Fountain one? No. Yeah, there's a company called Blood Noise Endeavors that makes... Oh, Blood Noise, I know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they, they have one called the Black Fountain that's like a... It's an oil can delay. It's cool. I got to make a note of that. <laughs> yeah, it's good. I've got a couple of those. There's a couple different versions of them. And that proves my point, too, that like these days, we live in a time where gear is so good. <laughs> it's you, true, yeah. You need the old analog stuff, the Chase Bliss stuff, Poly 
digit. Uh, I'm always freaked out by those. They they have too many knobs for me. No, <laughs> I just can't. I, I I don't know. I work too fast to like really. I think I'd find them really intriguing, but when I look at them, I'm just like, I can't do that. You know, Even their right. overdrive pedals have like 12 knobs on them. They're very overwhelming. And MIDI and programming is my weakness. I, I yeah. can't be bothered to get too deep <laughs> with that stuff. The tonal recall, the therme, those those delays yeah. from the Chase Bliss are just so So good. do you find yourself like endlessly experimenting in the studio with that kind of stuff? Or do you just kind of like to get in there and knock it out and sort of find a tone that works and just go for it? Like how... How much time did you spend messing around with guitar sounds? Well, I mean, we did we did all the beds in two days. Okay. And then we did a, a day of acoustics. Yeah. You know, like, you know, there's a song where I'm playing my rezo. That's a great sounding thing. That, it, sounds, it sounds electrified to me. It is. Okay. Yeah, so it's plugged into an amp. Yeah. And there's a mic on it. And Key and the guy that mixed it just perfectly blended it. Uh, there's a mic, there's an acoustic mic as well on the, in, on the instrument. And then, a, okay. Yeah. Right on the cone. Yeah. yeah. The, the whole point was it to sound like, what the fuck is that? Right. <laughs> that was kind of the goal. It's definitely a resonator, but it, yeah, it sounded mangled in a good way. Spent two days on electric guitars. Okay. Uh, and I'd say that's pretty standard. I think I spent two days on my last record too. Oh, it's, it's a mixture of it's efficient. Let's hit it. Let's go. But if something needs attention, if, if we're chasing something and we're not finding it, we're going to spend as much time as we need. Although two days, that's not very much time. That's not very much time. I, I think I only booked seven, like a week mm-hmm. at that studio. When you're talking about getting beds done in two days, drums, bass, are you doing your parts? Like, are are you doing keeper stuff or are you just trashing everything that you do and doing it as an overdub? I'm not sure that we kept anything. Uh, definitely don't keep any of the vocals because I'm just sitting in the control room okay. providing something for those guys to play to. Yeah. But like guitar sounds, is, I think there may be one or two little bits that we we kept from the overdubs. The only thing is that like when we're doing beds, bass and drummer are in the live room. I have one, I have one amp plugged into one cabinet the whole day in another room. But when we properly do guitars, we throw four amps in the live room with five different cabinets to choose from. Yeah. You know, and like we put way more mics on it because we have all the, the inputs we need rather than having a, a, drum, a drum kit, all that stuff. So just like how demos, I approach them kind of like, eh, this isn't going to be the real thing, so I'm not going to fully go for it. With beds, I also, I don't put my heart and soul into it. I, I just want to provide enough that there's enough for the guys to play to. In fact, for a lot of the songs, I do one or two takes and then I'd say, just just play my uh, just play back my scratch for mm-hmm. them. Yep. So I could, because I was co-producing this with Murray, so I wanted to really just listen and and be aware of what was going on. So that's that was- cool. That's an interesting way to work. So you did it in Winnipeg. Yeah. Um. And so was there a go-to like guitar situation that you kept coming back to, or were you kind of like flipping between amps constantly, or uh, like two days doesn't give you a ton of time to experiment? What was was there like a main rig that kind of contributed to this sound of of this record? I thought I would be a lot more experimental, but my main amps, I use these two rock amps. And oh, yeah. Due to the nature of, you know, a lot of low tuning and a lot of lower register stuff, I need an amp with headroom um, that can hold its weight, that can push air, but is very dynamic. Mm-hmm. And those amps are just bad in a nutshell. Everything. I've never tried one of those. I've seen them, seen lots of them, but I've never tried one. 
They're amazing. I mean, you, you think of a hundred Watts and you think of a twin and it's like that pokey, Oh, first of all, it's 500 pounds. And yeah. How do I make this sound good? If I'm not playing pedal steel, this is like a hundred <laughs> Watts that's usable and it doesn't even feel like a hundred Watts. It just feels like body and warmth and dynamics and clarity and mid forward stuff. If you're into that. Amazing. So it's a hundred watt head or is it a combo? They come as both, but I use a head with, yeah. uh, on the album, we had a 412 cab, a 212, a 112, and we had a 15. No, we had an 18 inch speaker, Ooh. which is on a song called Sometimes You Lie, just on the main electric. I used that one amp the entire record. Okay, except, cool. Except on that It's You, on that resonator that's plugged into a Victory V40 amp. Yeah. Every other guitar electric is that amp. It does sound consistent, so I'm not surprised to hear that it w- that it was one setup. I messed around a lot on my last record. I I used that amp a lot, but I also used like this Benson amp I have. I used this Super Reverb, mm-hmm. like a '68 Super Reverb. I used this old K amp. I love mi- mixing it up, and I'm all about that. But it wasn't a, a sake of workflow and just rushing it. It was just that's my sound. Right, right, and it it's just so inspiring, and it just it was do it does the trick. So I, I just why if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> Murray was co-producing with you, and then is the are the guys playing bass and drums? And there's a bit of keyboard, that, although there's not very much. Uh, uh, are those all like your core touring band, or are those like Winnipeg guys? Like who is that playing on there? Yeah, so bass is my core bass player, Julian Bradford. He's from Winnipeg, plays in my okay. band. Yeah, and on drums I flew in from Austin, JJ Johnson. Okay, who, and he recently just left, but he was playing in the Tedeschi Trucks band for the last ten years. Right, used to play with Do- John Mayer, Doyle Bramhall II. Yeah, Oz Skaggs. I'm a huge fan of him, and we have a mutual friend that brought him out to a show of mine in April. I want to say 2019 uh-huh. in Nashville. I was playing at Layman Drug Company. Oh, okay, and. uh he brought him out, met him. Nothing really came from that. It was just nice to nice, nice little introduction. My friend came, yeah. and I was talking with him a few months down the road, talking about my new album. And he's like, "Yeah, I'm really trying to change it up. This record, I, I have a little list of like some dream drummers I'd love to bring on for the record." And he said, "And he just said, I bet JJ would do it." And I was like, "What? You think so?" <laughs> yeah, let me let me uh, put a text together and let's see. And sure enough, he was he was into it. Wicked. Blew him in right after uh, the last Tedeschi gig of the year. He got to experience some December Winnipeg weather. Woo! That's a life changer. It's a life changer. Uh, <laughs> but it was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful experience. He brought such a great vibe to the record. And uh, yeah, the drums sound phenomenal too. They're sort of like very dry seventies kind of drum sounds that the snare drums like really front and center and yeah and- that's jj uh keys i had a few different people play i had alex campbell who played on my last record he played some whirly all of the whirly he played it he's in winnipeg mm-hmm. um some of the b3 was played by a guy named bart mckay in okay. saskatoon yeah fantastic uh producer piano player he does a lot of work in the pop country scene and then on the first two tracks in the record, my friend Kevin Gastongay played on those two songs. He's a Minneapolis-based guy, and I know him through uh, Corey Wong, who we've done playing and just hangs with in between. He's become a good friend as well. Cool. So he is like, you got your pop, country, radio-style yeah. B3 player, your funk Minneapolis 
kind of big difference player, big difference. Yeah. And then Alex, who's a song servant, just kind of plays very simply mm-hmm. on the whirly, but it's, it's very perfect for the song always. And, and as far as your, like the solos and stuff, you know, a tune like nobody else has like this wicked slide solo. Are you, are you composing those beforehand at all in your head or like even literally composing them beforehand or are those fully just like, are you, are you improvising? Are you doing 10, 15 takes or is it first take? Like the way that you like working in that regard. Well, I, I always say first take is going to be your, your best. We're always, if you're on your fifth take and you're still chasing what you did in the first take, you're, it's never going to quite be the same. Uh, nobody else. I had been playing that song live, so I kind of had a solo formulated mm-hmm. that I wanted to do. So that that was already kind of composed, you know, heart by heart, uh, heart by heart. Did you see it coming? What are we doing here? Most of the songs I I had done solos on the demos, but yeah. none of them were strong enough that I wanted to replicate them. Uh, it's you. I that solo was was written. Like I, I, I oh, demoed yeah. that and then I did the same thing because I just liked it. Basically, every other song was was written in studio. So yeah, like you said, first take, I, I usually come up with an idea. Might take me a few tries. Uh, and sometimes we'll go hard in the paint, you know? Yep. Five, six, seven, eight takes until it's perfect. Or uh, it's not even that it's perfect. It's the right performance and it's got that it factor or that that magic thing. Because you, you and I both know it's not about it's not about what you're playing. It's how you're playing it and how it comes off. Anyone can play certain notes. It's just, can you, can you say them a certain way? How involved is Murray in that process for you? Like, are you sitting there in the room with him and he, is he kind of like egging you on to great heights or are you? Big time. He's, he's, yeah. he's, he's right there. I mean, he's not telling me how to approach the solo. He lets, he just sits there and watches me do whatever I do. Yeah. And then once, once, uh, you know, if I might be struggling with an idea, like, ah, I don't know where to take it. He might then pipe in and say, what if you uh, go up here and do this kind of thing? That's where he'll pipe in. But he's, he's very kind of like hands off unless he needs to, to say something, but it's great to yeah. have, great to have, good to have somebody like that. Yeah. For and sure. you know what? Even Paul, the engineer, uh, like I said, going back to groovy mustache drummer, Paul Yee, oh, he's, yeah. he's the engineer and owner at stereo bus recording. Okay. Not only is he a great drummer, he's actually an amazing bass player, great guitar player too, and he just has ears of gold. So the three of us are sitting in there honest, but often, and he might have a great idea too sometimes. So I'm, I'm not the kind of player who's like, oh, you can't tell me what to do. Like, are you trying to tell me how to? No, I take all the. You like it? I love it. I'll do it as many times as I need to until it's right. I don't want to settle, but I'm also not gonna. I'm not going to beat down a dead horse. You know what I mean? Like yeah. if something's, I love the things that are perfectly imperfect. I never yeah. want something that's clean and pristine and absolutely flawless. That is not what humans do. That is not what music <laughs> is. It's all about character and it needs to retain that first and foremost. And oftentimes it's in that first what, first or second take. What about your singing? Uh, is that a similar kind of thing where you're, you've got the phrasing, you've got the, Melodies all worked out. You're ready to go. You're just jumping in to perform it. Is that a something you have to work on in the studio, or does it just happen quickly? Uh, it's definitely not easy. It's 
recording vocals is exhausting, as you know. And uh, you do it separately, or do you do? You I do play? it separately. Yeah. Yeah. Once we get everything tracked, I mean, we'll do all the keys and stuff. We're done. We ship those out. Those are we're done later. Uh, first of all, before we hit the studio, we did like a week of pre-production, which is okay. You know what that is, but for those that don't know what that is, you know, we, me, myself, and Murray. <laughs> Sorry. Me, Murray, and Julian, what am I saying? <laughs> All me, three me. of you. All three. <laughs> uh, we just got together at his house for a week every day. We'd go through each song, make sure the lyrics were as good as they could be. You know, sometimes yeah. a line needs a tweak. Sometimes the, the most common thing, I don't know if you feel like this as a producer, but the biggest thing we do as producers is cleaning it up, chopping away the, the excess fat, you know? So it's a lot of that. And that also includes a lot of vocal lines, like, you kind of, we don't need to sing that we're along. You can just say we're along. You know, we've, we've already established that melody. Why, you know, like let's, let's make that faster. So things like that change. Mm-hmm. So when we get to the studio to record the vocals, all those notes have been taken care of already. Right. And we can just jump to it. And the process is I'll sing a tune maybe four to six times and then we'll calm somebody together that we like and all the harmonies stuff is that you doing most of the harmonies it sounds like it's mostly you You're doing all of them. yeah and is that that's all stuff that you have worked out in advance too or do you do you put that all together as you feel it some of that stuff is worked out in advance murray and i love background vocals we maybe even more than recording guitars really <laughs> like if you if you check out my first record we went to town on the background vocals, almost like too much. <laughs> yeah. So, so much work for considering you can't even hear some of the little elements that are happening. Really? This time, there's still a lot more. There's a lot of background vocals, but we didn't go nearly as crazy as mm-hmm. the first time. So we just love that shit. We, I, again, I demo these songs. I'll typically do three parts on the choruses. I'll, I'll add a three part on halfway through the second verse. Like the classic same thing every time. Yeah. And as we go, Murray might go, hey, what about some ooze on this part? Or what about we catch this line? Or I'll go, hey, I, I want to catch this line. Or I want to do a call and answer thing. Or I want to do it, you know. And then we just, we really have the most fun doing that. Like When we do background vocals, we have access to this other studio in Winnipeg called Signpost. And Murray kind of has free reign to that place. So we can just book as many sessions as we need without worrying about a time constraint or studio fees or anything like that. Very grateful to have that. So we'll just book little mini sessions. You know, background vocals are exhausting if you do them the way we do them. So we'll go in three, four hours at a time and we'll just do it over an, a few days. I saw a post re- that you did right when the record came out just a few days ago. It seemed like you, you were implying or saying, I think you said that it was like a really stressful pro- time for you as well. Is that Was that a, a thing to do with the recording aspect or just like to do with everything else in life? Both. Uh, I, you know, it was, it was stressful having to navigate putting out a record in a pandemic. Yeah. This was supposed to come out in September of last year. Oh, really? A bunch of touring attached to it. Yeah. But like, I don't, I don't feel bad for myself because everyone was in the yeah. same boat. That's all good. Yeah. I, what, it was just more so stressed me out of like, I put everything I had not only into the, the writing, but during the recording process, you know, there was one song I, I kind of rewrote a month later and went back to the studio, we had to recut the vocals and I had to basically cut apart the entire song and put it back mm-hmm. together in a different way. Some of the tracks 
you know how it goes. Sometimes you get tracks that don't work for you and you have to pivot yep. and try something else. Um, with the mixing, some songs, I mean, he and Reardon mixed it. He did a fantastic job and he's such a professional. So you weren't around for the mixing? No, but Audio Movers, not sponsored by them, but works great. <laughs> yep. I use it all the time. Um, he, he was completely down for the cause, uh-huh. meaning that like, you know, some songs, I think we were up to 12 or 13 revisions before it was sounding exactly like I was hearing it in my head. Yeah. Just like the little particular things that no one would ever notice that only I notice or care about. Sure. I went, kept me up at night. I would. It's good, man. You're, you're supposed to do that. Yeah, it gave me some gray hairs. Gave me, gave me some more gray <laughs> hairs. I already had some gray hairs. Uh, definitely <laughs> possibly gave me an ulcer. And uh, I feel like if you're not getting that experience, putting together a record, you're not fully caring. It's not that you're not doing it right, but it just requires so much attention and detail and care. I don't know how you could do it any other way. If you actually care about it. So, I mean, it was, and there's other things too, just like, oh my God, this thing was printed wrong or this thing was wrong. Oh my God. Oh, really? Just little things. There's, there's always been, as it goes, happens with every, but the whole process. Uh, so if you shelved it from September to like, why did you pick now to put it out? <sighs> Good question. I, <laughs> you know, I, my manager and, and my team that I work with for distributing music, I'm not on a label or anything like that, but uh my, my distro team and my manager and everyone, we were originally, I think, going to do beginning of January. And they just said, mm-hmm. why? Like, what's what's the rush? We, we kind of don't know what's happening. Right. Why don't you just do it in March? And we just kind of decided we picked a date to give us enough time to do a big enough of a rollout. You know, normally yeah. you put out your first single, tour it for two months, put out another single, tour that. And then third single, maybe a week later, the album comes out. Since we don't have the luxury of the traveling, it's like, let's spread this out. Let's put out a few more singles than normal. Let's just try something different. So it was just about having enough ammo. And is that what you did here? Did you put out one song at a time? I did five singles, which is a lot more than I would usually do. First one coming back came out in September, carry me home in November. What are we doing here? January. And then uh, now I see in heart by heart, we're in February, just kind of like we're, we're almost there. And it worked out great. It worked out fantastically. It was just, it was a very interesting way of just evolving with the times, you know? Yeah. I also, yeah. I also did a lot more content than I normally would have. So lyric videos, live videos, interviews, uh, separate from like press, you know, just actual yeah. stuff yeah. that I can put out myself just because I don't have the opportunity right now to go out and, and you know what? I was very, I was very hesitant. Like I recorded this album in December, 2019 had a, a an epic January, and then I was in the UK all of February. Then I went to Sweden for two weeks with high hopes. Played my last show in Thunder Bay, March seventh. Flew to Ireland. The next day, the world shut down. I thought, oh, it's fine. I mean, things will be back in two or three months. I mean, I I, I was taking off a couple months anyways. I feel so bad for anyone that was putting up music in that first month or two or three of COVID because yeah. it's like no one had the First of all, no one was commuting to work. So I don't think people were listening to music, even if they weren't panicking from the pandemic. They just weren't, everyone was just at home and uh, everyone was just so distracted. A year later, March now, this is kind of a new normal. We're all kind of just used to our place. We're used to doing our thing. 
And I feel like it took a while for people to be able to listen to music again. So that was a yeah. huge reason why I didn't want to just get it out. But a big part of me was right. like, yeah, I'll, I'll wait until life goes back to normal. But if I wait too long, I might not dig it anymore. Or dig something. it anymore. Yeah. And so do you have plans for the record? Like as far as like, are you making touring plans or, or not? I, I do have some some shows over the summer that were rebooked from last year, which not to be like a pessimist, I just, I'm not holding my breath for them. And then I, I even have some tour dates booked for beginning of 2022. Also, I'm not holding my breath because I just don't know. All we can do is plan ahead and try to make a plan, but who knows? I think you've you've done it better than most have to my, to my observation anyway. Like you've managed to connect, you know, cool guitar-y kind of way, but also like getting your songs across still. And, uh, you know, I think it's really worked for the way that you perform and the way that you're presenting it. It's cool. It's good to see. Well, it all worked out. It's been a, you know. You've been sitting on it for a while. That's It's good to get it out there, get it off your chest, so to speak. Yeah, man. Thank you for spending the time with me today. It's Such a much pleasure, man. I'm a, I'm a fan and I'm a fan of the podcast. So it's really oh, nice thanks. to be on here, man. Thanks for having me. All right. That was my conversation with Ariel Posen. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you next month for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Over and out. Thanks for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. Don't forget to follow us on social media and please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify Podcasts. And you can find us online at makersandshakerspodcast.com. As always, thanks to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for help with research. And we'll see you next month for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.